1: Today, we are talking to Anne stevenson Yang, co-founder and research director at J-Capital Research, a firm that was founded in 2007 and focuses on investigating global equities, particularly Chinese stocks, based on extensive primary research and public sources. J-Cap takes an activist approach and is usually on the short side, issuing influential reports after they've investigated suspicious transactions, reported in companies' financials, and potentially fraudulent accounting. For some very interesting reading that provides a lot of insight into business in China, you should definitely head to JCap's website and check out Anne's recent report on bit Digital and other equities she has covered, such as Luckin' Coffee. Anne, welcome to China Corner Office. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be here. Great. Well, well first would love to just hear a little bit about the background and business of J Capital research. I think I understand you started it in late 2007. I would love to hear a little bit about about the business you do, what led you to start it, and your experience.
0: Hmm. Well, what led me to start it is that I was running an online uh, media internet company and uh, we couldn't afford to pay myself. It had been 18 months and I just really needed some money. So I left and got a consulting contract and that morphed into uh, J Capital. And we started working for um, for investment funds, you know, sending them uh, research on listed companies. And then in th- there started to be so many fraudulent Chinese companies on the exchanges, and it really was kind of getting on my nerves. So in uh, late twenty ten. I got a friend to help me do some research, and I published uh, two reports on Chinese listed companies. I published them publicly, which we hadn't done before, and that started our short business.
1: Great. Can, can you say a little bit about that research? I've read some of the reports, and I'm really looking forward to digging into it, but it's sort of, it's like, you know, part detective story, part, um, you know, sort of understanding the Chinese Business environment and players in general. Can you, yeah, say a little bit about your research process?
0: Yeah, I guess what distinguishes our research is that we focus on primary research, channel checks. Um, you know, going to plays, going to factories, knocking on doors, talking to uh, con- to, to uh, competitors and customers, doing surveys, that kind of thing, rather than just looking at the financial statements. So. Um, So we started the company in China, and we have since branched out to a whole lot of uh, companies that are listed overseas, whether they be China domiciled or not.
1: So, I mean, there's thousands of, of public companies. I'm curious, like the ones, you know, to actually go and investigate, you know, sort of observe factories, go check out, you know, how much traffic is in and out of coffee shops. Uh, is is relatively time intensive. Um you know how how do you narrow down some of the ones that you actually think are worthy of uh, of research?
0: It is time intensive, and you look at a lot more companies than you actually do deep work on. Uh, you screen a lot of companies. but the first thing to look at is just the smell test, you know. I mean, let me think of a couple of flagrant examples that are now delisted. Like, um, there used to be a Hong Kong company whose name was actually Fook Wu. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you have to imagine that was intentional. And they did um, paper recycling, but they reported margins that were just not reasonable for paper for recycled paper products. And so, when you when you poked into their financials, you could see. Oh, well, they're buying these uh, recycling machines for way more than those than those companies charge the market mm. for. So they were it was basically just a, a very classic uh, capex fraud. Um, Theres another company called Li Hua, which was making copper pipes, um, and they were also reporting much higher margins than you'd expect. So that the first thing is just like the smell test. Like, is it possible to make something that everybody else makes? That's basically a commodity product, but to do, you know, 50 percent better than anybody else does. That
1: makes sense. And then for some of those examples, you'd then go, I mean, in the paper recycling example, you would, you know, there's obviously they have some supposed, I don't know, factories or processing centers. And then, you know, maybe the amount of product in there or work that's sort of flowing through there doesn't come anywhere near their reported statements. Is that the kind of thing?
0: Yeah, I mean you have to read the statements carefully and find out where the soft points are, where the questionable points are. So in that particular example, what we did is we, we looked at the amount of capital equipment and what they'd spent on capital equipment. It didn't really seem to make sense. So then we checked with the uh, Finnish company that was supplying the the machines, and you know, it was clear that that they were charging about half the price that Fookru was was reporting, so that was pretty easy. We visited the plant, we talked to competitors, we talked to uh, suppliers, but you know that was the core of it: the the cost of the capital equipment. All right,
1: interesting. That's that's very interesting. I know, you know, one of the more recent reports that you did was on this company uh, Bit Digital, which is in the the Bitcoin mining. Uh, operation is publicly traded i think i think on either nasdaq or the new york stock exchange i can't remember uh, which one and and i read through recently this report and it's really interesting there's this guy mr leo who you know had some p2p fraud some car rental sketchy sketchy car rental business and now is doing bitcoin and it seems almost there you know I'm curious, I want to dive into this, you know, how much is this, you know, similar players, like I can imagine any business, perhaps that Mr. Leo, founds might be open to questions. I'm curious, you know, were you following Mr. Leo? Were you interested in the Bitcoin uh, market? What, What got you to bit digital?
0: I mean, it used these companies have always been around and these people have always been around It's just that they used to be way smaller. Um, but the market has been so flush with uh, with loose capital and crazy capital this year that a lot of them have gotten to be really big, and and Bit Digital is one of them. So I I knew the company a little bit when it was called DNJ Arg or Golden Bull, but it was just always too small and too illiquid to pay that much attention to. And I figured, you know, there are some retail investors, there are some day day traders out there who just like making, you know. in a day and getting out of it, it doesn't really matter whether it's authentic. But once the company got to be, I don't know, a billion dollars or something, then it was like, come on, you know, we've got to tell people about this because people are losing serious money.
1: And then, so you, can you describe a little bit about then how you dig into that? I mean, the bit, bit, you know, Bitcoin mining is a little bit more, you know, ephemeral, I guess, than actually paper Re- recycling and, and, you know, although I guess there are sort of, you know, computer servers and electricity needs, um you know, I'd love to hear about how you're able to triangulate on some of the, you know, reported financials uh, to, to create some questions as to whether they were valid or not.
0: Well, the, I think the first thing is is again the the smell test. What what's the more likely scenario? You have a team that's um, that, that's been engaged in illegal business in China. Many of whom were jailed. Uh, they were churned through, and the company appointed new executives. But those new executives appear to be just front men for the old executives. Uh, you have two businesses that really. One of which was illegal, the second of which didn't exist at all. And now you have a third business that claims to be the largest and most efficient Bitcoin miner on public markets. It has seven employees, it has one uh, IT employee, and it's only existed in this current form for four months, and yet it's worth a billion and a half dollars, you know, $1.2 billion or whatever it was uh, last week. I mean, is it more likely that that company is lying about its operations, or that that company really is incredibly efficient and incredibly competent at getting into this new space? Yeah,
1: and I know you. So you had called a variety of play you know they said they had operations in certain provinces and they you know when you you did some investigation around that can you just describe some of your primary research and investigation on bit digital
0: yeah sure so you what in, in china you have to uh, register with the local government uh if you're going to have a, a data center or do bit mining operations and so the governments all know Who's there and who isn't, and they know where they have, you know, the, the, these operations are sponsored. They're not just like passively set up. Plus, the, you know, the bit, Bitcoin mining is done in very small towns where um, where power is cheap. So the places that they report are really kind of far flung and, and small areas where local government officials are gonna know absolutely everything that goes on. So, you know, we called these people and said, hey, what about Bit Digital?" And they were all like, huh? Never heard of them. And we're like, well, how about Golden Bull? That's their old name. Do you know them? No. Well, do you have any Bitcoin mining? Cause they're a Bitcoin miner, no. We don't have any Bitcoin mining. We don't have any data centers. I mean, they were categorical about it and in every one of these situations. So maybe that's not true. Maybe somebody in his living room has a bunch of uh, of servers that he hasn't reported. But, you know, we couldn't find any of these data centers.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I've sort of since, you know, we initially talked, uh, uh, you know, I've been tracking and since I saw the report tracking Uh, bit digital and it went down some um, but they also I guess released a press release saying they had mined recently you know 291 bitcoins Uh, I'm curious you know your research having spent time in China and talked to a number of Chinese companies and some other investors you know makes a lot of sense to me and I would you know not buy bit digital and I would get out of it if I owned it you know wh- you know it, it has maintained some of its it's you know a decent amount of its value. What's your uh, experience as far as how long it takes investors to catch on uh, to these type of situations so that the stock sort of collapses as opposed to just declines slightly
0: I mean look we're in a market mania that really just doesn't have uh, much to do at all with fundamentals I mean like I'll give you an example um, a, a few weeks ago, I covered a company called CBAT, which uh, purports to make um, rechargeable batteries for electric cars. It really makes uh, AA size batteries. Uh, 97% of them are for appliances. And um, so I, after I issued the report, I talked to a retail investor who called me and he was like, Oh, but this is such, you know, th- these guys are going to go into electric cars and they're going to be so awesome. And I'm like, okay fine but what about right now well right now they do so many batteries for electric cars i said well have you read the the financial statements they say they disclose it's 3% of their sales and he hadn't read them of course he didn't know it was just 3% so you know that's what that, that that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with. The average investor in these companies is not reading. They're looking at the direction of the share price. So, you know, as somebody, I forget who it was, maybe even Keynes said, um, you know, the market can stay irrational a lot longer than you can stay solvent.
1: <laughs> well, hopefully that's not a good philosophy for all short sellers, but I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, p- you yeah, know, cer- certainly putting out this research, I mean, it's very, it sounds very, uh, compelling to me. Um, I'm curious about another case, which also got a, got a lot of press in the mainstream U.S. and Western media is Luckin Coffee. Uh, I was wondering if we could also talk about that. I'd love to learn more about your research process with Luckin, and it's something that, you know, it's sort of taken on life its own as far as that, you know, the company before its market problems, I had, I had taken some students to China and they're sort of coffee aficionados and they were so excited. They'd read about Luckin and they wanted to, you know, you know, enjoy the Luckin coffee. And then, you know, two months later actually find out they have a bunch of fraud going on. So, so I'd love to learn about, you know, your, how, how you identified the issues at Luckin and then, um, you know, published on them.
0: Yeah, so Luckin's another example of just plain common sense. So as somebody who lived in China for many, many years and had a zillion meetings at Luckin Coffees, I love them as a consumer and I hate them as an investor or an analyst, Um Because, you know, as a consumer, they're always giving you free shit, you know, like you can you every time you go into Luckin or in the past anyway, you just register with a different number or a different email address and they give you free coffee. Who wouldn't like that? And you can sit as long as you like and. If you don't if you're if you're not willing to use your WeChat or your Alipay account to pay, they won't give you anything. But they won't kick you out either. So I remember waiting for a guy I, I was early to a meeting in Nanjing. And I went to a luck and I was waiting for him, and I was just feeling kind of ornery and I refused to pay with my Alipay account, but I was really hungry, they would not sell me anything. So I sit there with hot water and lemon, which they give me, for like 45 minutes, I walk to the bathroom past table after table of other people sitting there reading newspapers, smoking cigarettes, drinking hot water, and not buying anything, and you think to yourself, there's got to be something wrong with this company whose incentives are all stacked toward registration online rather than actually paying money.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And did you follow that up with anything? I mean, I think some folks had like sort of watched and saw how many people came in and out a bunch of ins and tried to track that to their reported financials.
0: Yeah, we didn't do the uh, the surveys ourselves because that's very very labor intensive. Uh, the anonymous report I think had a thousand staff on that for part time for uh, for four months or something like that. We we wouldn't be able to afford to do that, but we did piggyback on other people's surveys. You know, it was it was pretty obvious, and you know one of the main things that you look for in Chinese companies is related party transactions. So do the um, do the the directors own other companies. Um, are they transacting with those other companies? Uh, that's always that's always a big big red flag um, because you know you can if, if I register a company, then I can book a contract with you that says ten million. You know I'm going to buy ten million dollars worth of junk from you, and. You and I have a wink and nod agreement that I'm never going to pay you, and you're never going to deliver goods. But the contract gets booked by the auditor as ten million dollars in revenue. Fine.
1: That makes sense. So I'm I'm curious. What other sort of rules of thumb? I mean, you mentioned like some of the early examples of the the paper and the copper, um, you know, businesses. You know that they're sort of in some ways, I guess their CapEx and also their margins were very, a lot of variation to the industry averages. Related party transactions is another one. What what other sort of rules of thumb uh, do you think, you know, you can give to folks for like ways to identify some of these fraudulent situations?
0: So I would say that the first thing I look for is bloated assets, uh, particularly if the assets are intangible. So Who's to say what they really are? But also capital uh, capital equipment. So I covered a company that's now delisted called Zhongping uh, Zhongping, which made um, it was a slaughterhouse for pork. Even though I'm a vegetarian, I covered this company. Uh, its ticker was Hogs, and um, that company had a very very simple and very classic strategy, which is it overstated its margins, overstated its profit, and then tucked all the extra money that was flowing off of its uh, statements into overstated capital equipment. So if you actually walked into the slaughterhouses, you'd see a whole lot of ladies lined up in aprons with knives. But if you read the statements, you'd believe this was an incredibly automated, you know, robots-only facility.
1: We talked a lot about the Chinese examples. I know that you invest in short positions and, you know, other places um, as well. And I know in the U.S., uh, you know, there's a much more, I think, a much more developed in some ways culture around shorting. I mean, you know, Tesla is the famous example, although I haven't, you know, you haven't heard, been hearing about their short... Short uh, positions this year, but before then, you know there was a lot of discussion of this. Many other sort of well-known stocks. I'm curious, how would you contrast the these investigative techniques that you do to identify opportunities in China versus how you may evaluate companies um, elsewhere?
0: Well, I think the investigative techniques that we apply once we settle on a company are the same. The 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 types of problems that you find in American companies versus uh, Chinese companies. Uh, tends to be different because U.S. or other foreign companies tend to be—they uh, they, they tend to, first of all, make, um, make adjustments to their financial statements in 10 different ways rather than in just one way because they're trying hard to avoid detection. Um, and they also will have um, a lot of acquisition and um, intangibles fraud, rather than uh, fraud in, in physical assets, because the intangibles. You know, if I if I go to you and I say, "Hey, Chris, um, I'm going to buy your company actually for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but please, will you write me a contract that says a million? You know I can incentivize you to do that. Um, you have to be a little careful. it's not legal. there's this, there's that. but you know it's more likely that as a company that's worried about compliance, I'm going to do that kind of thing um, or engage in accounting tricks rather than just flat out lie about what my margins and my capex are.
1: As I think about this company like sort of thinking about going back to bit uh, digital, I mean the interesting thing is that those companies are public on U.S. exchanges and is you know how do these companies actually get to be public on U.S. exchanges and is it are the ones that are public on U.S. exchanges is there less of a chance of them being fraudulent than on Chinese exchanges or doesn't matter?
0: I mean, how do they get public on U.S. exchanges? I mean, how do they find um underwriters? How do they find auditors, how do they find other professionals? You know, because for these these folks, including the exchanges, it's a business um, and they're sales organizations. And as long, you know, they don't want to get into anything outright fraudulent, but as long as you make things, you know, look cosmetically good enough, then, uh, that, then they'll do it. So it doesn't surprise me very much. Um, are they more likely to be fraudulent if they're not listed on US exchanges? Uh, It has to do with a lot of different things than exchanges. For example, in China, on the A-share exchanges, the disclosure requirements are actually much, much better than they are in the US, and the private company uh, disclosure requirements are also much, much better. But you do get a zillion fraudulent companies on the Chinese exchanges. Interesting.
1: Uh, I noticed when I read the Bit Digital report, I mean, one of the things that you noted is a lot of the like, I don't know, the auditors, they changed a the number of times, There were third-tier auditors, they were people that, you know, they wouldn't actually unqualified, make an unqualified decision. Is, I assume, is that sort of another flag that you can find for these companies, or does that is that relatively commonplace?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, if an auditor, no, it's not commonplace okay. at all. And if an auditor um, it resigns an account just a few days before the, the closing of the annual um, statements, then you know that there's a problem, you know? So the auditor's job is not to go to the regulators and say, you know, or to go to the public and say this is fraudulent. The auditor's job is just to audit or not to audit. And if they decline to audit, that's a big red flag. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Is there any listing of those those things that happen in, you know, in in the exchanges, or that's just from your sort of investigating company by company that you discover that
0: you mean of the auditors you can the pcaob has a website that lists uh the audit partners and the audit firms that cover each you know listed company got it
1: because so then you could you could sort of find out sort of through changes in that that's cool um i'm I'm curious also at more sort of macro level the chinese economy and what your uh sort of sense is so you know A number of trends. I mean, one, you know, a lot of news media right now is reporting, you know, China in 2020 is going to be the only country that has positive, you know, GDP growth. There's a lot of talk about e-commerce and and you know companies like Alibaba, Tencent. Although obviously Ant ran into some problems with their with their IPO. I'm wondering what's your what's your sense of the Chinese market as a whole? Are these fraudulent companies just like you'd find anywhere? Or are there some systematic issues with how Chinese companies are 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 sort of reporting their gains and potentially um, going public?
0: That's sort of two questions. One question is, are there macro uh, trends that would suggest fraud? And the other is, are Chinese companies more fraudulent than others? And I would say as to the latter, no, There there are two problems with China. One problem is that um, they're they're pretty much they're pretty much consequence free. So um, if you commit fraud, you know if you list a company in the U.S. if you're a Chinese citizen, you're not a U.S. citizen, um, and that company is deemed to be fraudulent and delisted, and there are lawsuits against it. You just go on and you know you delist it and you do something else. So for example, Longtop, where the chairman actually admitted that they lied about having a billion dollars in the bank. They just delisted, and you know they went on just fine. The company still exists; all of it's running under its subsidiary names. It still does what it always used to do. You know, no problem. So that's that's a big problem if there's there's all upside and no downside. Um, and the second issue is that the markets have been so um, have been so welcoming to uh, to Chinese concept stocks. So if if you know if I if I were to say, oh, I'm gonna Sell J Capital products on the internet, and I've formed this really cool internet site. Um, you know, people, people would buy that idea on the idea that, you know, the, that, that something Chinese is going to grow a whole lot. So, so that just creates a set of incentives that are very um, dangerous for investors and very enticing for, um, for company managers. As for the macro stuff, I mean, I would say that in years past we looked very carefully at macro trends and this year the the main macro trend is just just you know tulips. <laughs> it, it's just like you know the, the market the markets are in a mania and so stuff you know jets up 5x or 6x or 10x. And so you look at that stuff because if it's uh, if the price has gone up 5x in three weeks, then you have to figure that somebody's promoting that price because they need the price to be high, not because it's actually something good. In years past, we would have looked at, you know, like one of our more successful names was uh, Iluca Resources, which sells mineral sands. It's a mine out of Australia. It's a very, you know, it it really does mine mineral sands. It really does sell a lot of mineral sands and titanium, but um, you know, the the market was going to demand a lot less of it as the construction boom in china uh, declined so you know it was a good
1: short yeah interesting i'm I'm curious you mentioned you know sort of in some ways at a macro level you know the investors are crazy about you know chinese stocks things that are going on in china you mentioned earlier one of the retail investors that you talked about about you know one of the companies that you um you've covered i'm curious who are these investors mainly i mean i think about like you know I don't know, Fidelity or Vanguard or even Calpers or some, you know, pension plan. It seems that w- which I think for ma- for lo- larger cap US firms are the, you know, the mainstay investors, but I can't imagine those folks are get excited about these types of investments, but I could certainly be wrong about that. I mean, who is it mainly hedge funds? Is it, you know, more day trading type people? Who who are who are these investors that are excited about these concepts?
0: I would say it's two types of investors. The main type is the retail investor of whom there are a lot this year because people are just, they have more time, they have more cash at hand. And the second is algo driven driven trading. So um, if something goes up in the morning, then the algorithms are going to drive it to keep going up. And if it keeps going up, they're going to drive it to keep going up.
1: Interesting. That that, that, that that makes sense. So it's not the big institutions. Those people are mostly probably staying away.
0: Yeah, the big institutions tend to be impervious to the point where it's really maddening, you know, like you'll have you have the big institutions just ignoring very well documented reports, for example, on wirecard showing that it's a criminal enterprise for 2 years wow. until the stock actually collapses and then are there any consequences for those people? No. Yeah because, you know, another big institution recommended the stock. So, you know, of course we would buy it. Why not?
1: I'd love to hear as well about your thoughts, you know, about the e-commerce boom, you know, sort of at a macro level, companies like, you know, know, Alibaba is a good example, you know, with all the, with COVID, e-commerce, you know, seems like that would be, you know, like a great investment, sort of long type investment. Is that your assessment, all this e-commerce boom, you know, as China tries to foster more of a consumption society, or is there sort of an underside there that that the macro picture doesn't doesn't uncover?
0: Yeah. So in theory, but that's the problem that it's in theory, it's not about that specific example. So I, I would say two things to that. Number one, this idea that China is fostering a consumption society is just nonsense. Um, it, it isn't supported by any of the data. It's not possible if you look at, uh, if you look at the importance of driving GDP growth to, the, to China, you'll realize that the only tool for driving GDP growth is investment and that's antithetical to consumption, right? So, yeah. so th- this whole idea of the consumption society is just <laughs> flatly wrong. Um, but as for um, as for moving to online retail uh, from from physical retail, yeah, sure. The question is, is that company Alibaba uh, or JD or VIP Shop or any of those company, you know, are those companies actually benefiting from it, or instead are they? Benefiting from a whole lot of investment trends in order to pump up their numbers and make it look that way. So, you know, if those, if Alibaba were reporting, you know, a nice solid six percent growth per year, then I might start to believe it. Um, But you know, when you when you look into Alibaba's disclosures, honestly, you would just, um, if if you actually take the time to read the disclosures, you would
1: laugh. (laughs) What sort of uh, red flags? What would you find there?
0: I mean, where do I begin? Um, you know the 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 fact that um first of all the the lack of disclosure, the fact that uh, in in all these years since listing, despite being uh, so incredibly awesome at at technology, they haven't said which portion you know what what portion of their revenue derives from what segment, and that's because they can't because a huge portion of their revenue de- derives from selling financial products and from uh, just kind of empty transactions with their background partner ant. Um, but secondly, they they acquire. I think they've bought up like, they've acquired maybe $42 billion worth of assets since their listing in 2014. They keep on buying these companies. Uh, the, the, the argument for Alibaba was that it's you know online retail, it's asset light, la 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 la. And then they started buying all these physical companies like a grocery chain and a um, a, a real estate chain and a chain of, um, of stores called InTime. Um, So they buy all these things and then the things just disappear from their balance sheet and they never report on them. Um, And somehow you've got this, you know, massive growth, but that's way in excess of the growth that that company used to have. But they never tell you why or how. I mean, I could go on, but I won't (laughs) because, you know, I certainly wouldn't recommend shorting Alibaba. It's just, you know, it's just one of those things that will die when it dies. Got
1: it. Is it because of the, yeah, you you can't tell how long it will be until it dies or just, I mean, they're bringing in so much cash that they could, main, or have so much cash on hand that they can maintain operations for a long time? Is that generally the reason?
0: Um, well, I mean, Alibaba, like Tencent, uh, the, the fundamental skeletal operations of Alibaba can be run at very, very low cost. So, uh, so if you want to do that, you can. But the fundamental... Purpose of an Alibaba or a Tencent is to be a a, 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 a suction cup for investment capital, and so um, in Tencent's case, I'd say it's a little bit more about money laundering. In in Alibaba's case, I'd say it's a little bit more about investment. But you know, that those are really really broad statements. So when we get to a point where the money supply does not keep growing at 10 percent a year then it will shrink but when the money supply is growing the way it is there's there's more loose capital in china than there is even in america then alibaba will still exist for a little while
1: Yeah, makes that pretty interesting and i think you know i'd love to hear your thoughts as well on some of these other sectors so at least certainly you know fintech e-commerce i mean there is actually real innovation going on in China and companies growing but you know when I've been in China you know things like AI you know blockchain seem a little bit more I don't know the right term ephemeral I mean even I as a researcher you know I was visiting a university in Shenzhen and they were like oh you know if you just research blockchain or AI you know you can get a two million dollar or two million renminbi grant and I who I mean I'm a business school professor I'm not some technology person so it seems sort of you know, sort of bizarre that that would be, that would be possible. So I'm, I'm curious your perspective on some of these other industries, other technology industries, where it seems like the hype might be more than reality. Is that another way to identify potential sh- short options or, um, or maybe that's too broad brush of a thing to say?
0: I would say that fintech um, is, is, it is very often, uh, there, there's very often fraud and um, and law-breaking within fintech. And it's very rare that fintech is a good short because, uh, because generally fintech companies have access to a whole bunch of cash. And when companies have access to cash, then they tend not to be good shorts. Um, as for the innovation in China, I mean, I don't want to be too much of a downer on this, but people are always telling me, oh, it's just so awesome, WeChat and Alipay. Well, you know, it was just 10 years ago that everybody had to line up at the bank just to pay their phone bill. I mean, I had an assistant pay my phone bill every year for 20 years because I couldn't be bothered dealing with it um, until it became a digital process um, mortgages, you know, anything, you'd go to the bank, you'd take a number and you'd be there for like an hour and a half. So of course, when, um, when, when Alipay and TenPay started to make it easier to make payments, of course they you know, we had already been using credit cards for 20 right. years, but China had not had any of this. So, so of course it became, um, you know, way more attractive and, um, you know, way more convenient than, than the banking system had been. Um, you know, is it really an innovation? I mean, the thing about, about Alibaba and 10, 10 cent and the other, uh, fintech firms is that they can only exist within the context of a controlled banking system where there are no defaults. So, um, so within the context of a, um, of a Chinese government that backstops absolutely everything, then you can have a lot of, you know, interesting innovation on top of it. But if you actually were to, if those companies were to take responsibility on their own balance sheets for these things, they would be a disaster.
1: No, that's very interesting. Uh, And how about things like, you know, AI blockchain that seem even more, at least to me, further detached from, reality. And I could be wrong on that. I'd love to hear your opinion on those industries.
0: Well, I mean, the the Chinese uh, participation in blockchain now is to be at what China has always been, which is factory to the world. So you have way more uh, block, blockchain mine and bitcoin mining and blockchain activity in china now um than in in other countries because all these governments are willing to host these centers for for cheap prices for for electricity and stuff like that but china closed down its bitcoin exchanges in in fall of 2017 you'll remember so i would say that that creates an incentive for uh, listed companies to provide an outlet to fund owners to get their, their Bitcoin out of China and onto international exchanges. I won't suggest who that might be, but I would say it creates a big incentive.
1: Yeah, I've got it. We want to switch gears slightly to sort of geopolitical type of, of things. I mean, is that something that you factor into your analysis at times in which companies to potentially invest in or short? I mean, obviously, in the last four years, Chinese companies have been under a lot of scrutiny just you know, recently, you know, trying to, you know, banning of WeChat, TikTok, you know, delisting a bunch of, of companies. It, you know, it seems most of our discussion has been sort of a more domestic type of investigation. Do you also, in some ways, think about the those international dimensions and, and how that might play into your research.
0: Not really, um, that would, you know, there are people who do that sort of thing, but um, for me, the um, legal or regulatory catalysts are just too hard to game. It's too hard to figure out when it will happen, what the effects will be. And that goes for the big, big things like, you know, sanctions, and also for the small things like, oh, the IRS has a case against this company, but when's it going to matter? Yeah. So I steer away from that kind of thing. Obviously, it's a big issue in the bilateral relationship, but the specific effects on stocks are really, really tough to say. Yeah,
1: interesting. How about any, um, any long positions you recommend or, or your, your business is entirely short?
0: No, for example, we recently um, published a report on TPIC, TPI Composites, okay. which is uh, an American firm that does um, it does wind wind farm blades uh, for wind turbines. You know, it's it, there, there's there's plenty of hair on this company. It's not the greatest company in the world, but it had it has an obvious opportunity to supply these uh, these blades to to turbines. Around the world, particularly as uh, as we build more turbines offshore, where the margins are much better. So TPIC, I think, is is pretty much a slam dunk. And in fact, it's risen about sixty percent since I issued that report, which is only a month ago. Wow,
1: wish we had talked a month ago. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe about that, it seems to make sense. I've, you know, there's been some articles recently about I think it's these GE windmills where the blades are you know, I don't know, 300 yards long or some 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 amazing dimension that I don't remember. I don't know if that's, you know, they're supplying those blades, but it does seem like particularly these offshore applications, I mean, it's, they're huge, Um huge.
0: Right, exactly. Because you, you fee- I mean, think about it, offshore, you have to have this incredible infrastructure to bring the power onshore. And then anything that goes, I mean, just think about how much you have to, you have to piss around taking care of a sailboat if you have one. And that's a little tiny thing. Then think of a huge wind turbine on a huge platform. I mean, it takes massive maintenance and it's massively costly if it goes down. But they all, you also have much steadier wind uh, at sea and much more powerful wind. So you put bigger turbines out there and you generate a, a whole ton of power. So you just you have a lot of incentive to do it right, um, which is why the, the margins are better, because people are not going to piss around saving $40,000 on their blades um, in on an offshore mill, if it on an offshore turbine, if it means that it could possibly go down. And that's going to be, you know, $3 million down
1: the drain. Yeah, it makes sense. It, it, so that's an American company. Yeah. In the, mm-hmm. Is there Chinese competitors to that company? Who, who, What's that market look like as far as the turbine blade market?
0: So the Chinese market is pretty much self-contained and served by a whole lot of Chinese companies. Um, and the Chinese market also builds a whole lot of, a whole lot of wind capacity. Right. Um, and us manufacturers don't really, not only us, but also, um, you know, in international suppliers don't really compete there very much, um, but I think I think you have to come down to the principle that I just mentioned with the offshore blades. You know, what's the the total value contributed by this piece of machinery uh, compared to the pro- the 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 value of the whole project? And if the value is not more than say, you know, 20%, then people are not going to save the money on that and and run the risk of the whole project. So the Chinese equipment uh, definitely performs worse and has more defects um, and has poorer reporting. So uh, foreign foreign, uh, manufacturers of turbines are reluctant to use their equipment overseas.
1: Great. Yeah, Well, super interesting to talk in and to learn about all these different sort of research techniques and different ways to sort of understand, um, you know, understand Chinese companies and actually all companies around the world. And, you know, it's really interesting to learn about TPIC. As a final question, I would just love to hear any, like one or two pieces of advice you might have to investors who are interested in investing in the China market or Chinese companies.
0: Gee, what do I know about investment? I really don't. I'm a, I'm very very specialized in my little tiny area. Um, uh, people who are interested in investing in China, I I've been thinking for a while that the big consumer companies with good brands and good distribution chains, um, you know, their their volume is not going to rise a lot, but their margins are going to rise because because um, all of this investment fueled noise, um, is going to, to start is already starting to to drop out. And then you have the Coca-Cola's and the yum China's and so forth. Um, you know, Unilever's, uh, doing, doing really well because they don't have to suffer this, this really, um, uh, really kind of cannibalistic competition that they used to have in China.
1: Yeah. Great. Well, Thank you. This is very, very interesting. And as I mentioned, you know, it's really interesting uh, discussion. So thank you so much for joining us on China Corner Office. Pleasure to talk to you, Chris. Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.